0: But it is my privilege to bring to you the Bible reading this morning, no matter how spontaneous it is. Uh, So we're reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Well, for those who like good news, in our uh, journey through the book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, uh, we're exactly halfway through. In fact, we're starting with that passage, the beginning of the second half of the letter. And uh, the book has been beautifully divided up into two even halves. The first half looking at everything God has done and the second half looking at um, how we're encouraged and called to walk and live in response to what God has done. Now, I don't know about you, but how many people here are the kinds of people who like things boiled down, you know, to really say, just boil it down, don't, don't give me all the details and just boil it down, what have I got to do, what are the two things, no more than two, does anyone else like that? here this morning who's willing to confess there are others of us that love nuance okay and i respect that totally um and i understand that and you might think two things we're going to boil something down to two things really there's just so much more you know uh to to explore and dig deep with that is totally fine um you are perfectly normal and that is okay um in fact the older i get the more i have learned and am learning to appreciate nuance and uh, it can be a a good thing but this morning uh, we get to boil it down and if I was to, um, to just summarise boiling down uh, all our problems in life, I think they boil down to just one of two things, and worst case scenario, both. Um, the first one is this, that our problems in life come as a result of believing the wrong things. Okay? And think about that. If you believe the wrong things, the wrong truth about something, well, you're going to end up with a lot of problems. The second basic problem is an inconsistent behaviour with the right beliefs. So one thing is having wrong belief but even if we do have right belief maybe our behaviour is inconsistent with what it is we know to be true. So it's just those two things. There's a two point sermon uh, this morning and my hope is to get to point two um, before the last two minutes of the sermon which is what happened this morning. Okay, So I've had a readjustment and you're going to get a good version this morning of God's Word uh, in the 10 o'clock service. I don't know if that sounds confusing to you, those two things, belief in the wrong things and inconsistent behaviour with the right belief. So let me illustrate each one. First of all, uh, belief in the wrong things. I'm going to go there this morning. I haven't said much specifically about COVID-19 over the past four months of the church because the media have done a good enough job of that, um, and uh, and social media and everything. So, but there are those in our society who simply do not believe that COVID-19 is real. They think it's a hoax, or they think it's some sort of conspiracy, some kind of um, uh, something that's been highly exaggerated. And you know, there's a whole lot of there's a whole growing movement around that sort of disbelief. Um, It's a somewhat understandable and common response from people when we're threatened by something that we cannot control or understand. Uh, So whenever a threat comes, you know, like think of when I grew up in the 80s, um, it was going to be the Russians were going to nuke everyone, right? It was going to be World War III and so we were fearful of of nukes and so there were all these conspiracies about Russia and America and all all this sort of, we're trying to control a threat and we do that by coming up with something that we can manage, explain, and understand. So I get that. Our fear of a threat, perceived or otherwise, drives us to think up all kinds of narratives and things. Someone surely somewhere must know what's going on and there's something sinister about it, we're all being duped. That's where that kind of uh, disbelief can come from. Now just in case there's any confusion, um, the church leadership here, myself, so none of us at all disbelieve in um, the reality of COVID-19. In fact, if I could just summarise, we believe that COVID-19 is about as real as the mumps, the measles, typhoid, polio, the Spanish flu, HIV, and the bubonic plague uh, as all of them have been and are, okay? So this is just another one uh, to add to the list. In a world that is uh, broken, a world that, is, um, that suffers bad things, and sometimes they're microscopic and we can't see them, and we don't understand them, but in time we will figure them out, and we will, as the politicians say, overcome. And and while sometimes living in a world that's trying to navigate these things, our federal and our state governments appear to be sometimes a little bit over the top, uh, particularly if you're living in WA or or Queensland as of yesterday, um, I'm thankful that we live in this country because there are a stack of a lot of other countries we could be living in who are doing it way, way worse than we are, where this disease has gotten very much out of control. I'm really thankful not only to be living in this country... Some of you may be really encouraged by this. I'm from Western Australia originally, those that, that don't know, but I'm really thankful to be living in New South Wales at the moment, aren't you? I say to people when they're complaining, say, well, it could be worse, we could, we could be living in Victoria. Um, or, as of yesterday, um, Queensland, you know, there, there's a, a Premier going really hard and, and uh, I've got family still in Western Australia, Melissa and I both do, and we hear from them and they they're basking in their... COVID-free state behind their hard border. They don't even know what social restrictions really are. They're meant to be socially restricting, but they're not. They're just enjoying life. That he was, One of my brothers was mocking us about having to wear a mask. He says, oh, what is this new piece of clothing I see all the eastern state is wearing? Uh, we, we don't have them in our state. And I said, mock, sure, but when your second wave does come, uh, you can turn to us and we will encourage you and, and give you blueprints for printing and making your own masks. Um, there's a whole lot of interstate bans are happening, right? But it is a good thing to be a part of not only this country, but also this state. But wrong belief about something, getting back to the illustration, can be a very dangerous thing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, yeah, I'm sure you've heard of at least one case, I'd heard of two, where a pastor in the United States had declared that COVID-19 wasn't real, it was a hoax, and had told his congregation as such and would continue worshipping in big, large churches and who ended up contracting the virus and dying. I looked into it because I "I want to verify that rather than just uh, repeat it. Uh, I was actually horrified to find the actual numbers. Did you know that in one denomination alone, a fairly mainstream evangelical denomination, 30 bishops have so far contracted and died from coronavirus across the United States? That's just one denomination. It turns out there 's actually been the, the article said several hundred clergy ministers of churches who have contracted the disease and died from it, and a number of them ha- have done so because they haven 't responded to, to to the health health restrictions now I know in the United States they are handling this very differently to us um, they 're actually their management plan, if you could call it that, uh, but it's still a plan, is to say we, we're largely just going to let it run its course and give people guidelines and options. And the states there are kind of resistant to enforce lockdown, and the president's certainly resistant uh, to do that, and that's their choice. We often misunderstand what the United States, what's happening there. They're actually, that's, their, that's the pathway they're choosing. We've taken a different path. But wrong belief in the wrong things can lead to really wrong and Hurtful and dangerous behaviour, can't it? And there's just one example. Which is why the Bible spends an enormous amount of time helping us learn and understand right beliefs about God. About really important things like who he is, about Jesus Christ, about what he's done. And in that we learn about ourselves in light of God and in light of Jesus Christ. We learn about the world in which we live and the Bible is God's revelation to us to help understand that. It may just be that some of your and my biggest or most basic problems in life are the result of wrong beliefs that we have perhaps about God or perhaps about each other, as we'll see in a moment. But this is why a theology is really important. And and Paul has told us already in the first half of the letter of God's eternal plan. This is the big story about what God is up to, uh, that we are are, are sinners, that we are separated from God, we're actually objects of his wrath, he says in chapter 2. And um, we learn about what God has done through Jesus Christ in reconciling all things under his rule and his, and his reign. This is what's called a, a meta-narrative, a, a big story. And, and a meta-narrative, the way they work is that every other small t truth fits into them somehow. Okay, this is the overarching uh, view of how things are. It's what it means to have a, a God uh, who's the creator and has an eternal plan. Um, And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying this is the story for all people, whether you believe it or accept it or not. This is how it is from God's perspective, the Creator. Um, But Paul's also gone at great lengths in those first three chapters to tell us about the church and how we fit into and are a part of this big story of God's eternal plan. In many ways, right belief is really important. In fact, it's more important than just telling us how to live. Paul could have started and said, all right, if you're going to be a Christian, this is what you've got to do. You've got to do this, you've got to do that. Don't do this, don't do that. Um, He might as well have just stayed continuing uh, being uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews, if that's what he was going to do. God's people already had the law. They already had the law, plus a whole lot of other laws they had added as fences to protect themselves from breaking God's law. But in Christ, Paul realised there was something different that God's law had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so he starts with right belief about God in order to impact right behaviour. Well, having right belief is one thing, but what about uh, the second uh, basic problem? that is a a consistent or inconsistent behaviour with the right belief. Um, This is just a quick illustration you may be very, very familiar with. I've heard it several times. I don't think I've used it here before, but a policeman apparently was driving... um, along the road behind a car that was driving recklessly and quite dangerously and uh, eventually he pulled the car over and rather than just walk up and give the driver a ticket he did something quite drastic. He went to the door, he opened the door, he grabbed the driver out of the car, threw him on the bonnet, uh, yes it was a bloke, um, and handcuffed handcuffed him and, and led him away and put him in jail. And uh, he's in the cell back at the police station and the police officer goes away to do some, some inquiries and so on. He comes back. And he says to this, to this man, I'm terribly sorry, there has been a mistake. As he opens the cell and he unlocks the handcuffs, he says to the man, there's been a mistake. You see, when I saw your vehicle with the fish sticker Uh, emblem on the bumper and the sticker that that, that, the WWJD the what would Jesus do sticker on the other bumper and uh, the honk if you love Jesus sticker on the rear window. I I naturally assumed that this car could not possibly be driven by someone who believes that but rather this car had been stolen and so when I pulled you over I I threw you into the cell and the policeman said I I conclude that um, the car must have been stolen but now I realise you're not a thief um, you're just a hypocrite okay and hypocrisy unlike grand theft auto is not a crime so you can you can go free you get the point there are lots of times when we believe exactly the right thing but our conduct doesn't line up with our beliefs and and all of us um if we're really honest have areas of hypocrisy in our life as christian people and that's a work in progress that each one of us are so there's the two basic problems wrong beliefs and inconsistent behavior with those beliefs so as we come to ephesians chapter 4 we read read this as a prisoner of the lord or as a prisoner for the lord then i urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received this statement is is the hinge of this book it takes everything that paul says we should believe in the first three chapters and now he seeks in the next three to apply that to the way we live In chapters 1 to 3, he's told us of God's big eternal plan um, and how we fit into that plan. And now he's saying, live a life worthy of that. You you see what God's done. You know who you now are in Christ. Live a life that's worthy of that truth, that right belief that you now have. And and Paul's going to help us to answer this question in the rest of the letter. If what Paul's saying is true, if what he's saying up till now about God and about us is true, then how would that make sense? our lives any different paul wants us to believe the right things and uh in these next few weeks as we go through these last three chapters he's going to be talking about lots of different things to help us understand right behavior in response or in consistency with right belief but interestingly right at the start in these few first first few verses he starts off with the challenge of relationships why would paul begin by applying what he's been teaching us to relationships i think it's fairly self-evident one of the reasons is because there are few areas in life that are more challenging than our relationships one with another and this is especially true within the church you see paul's been teaching us some pretty amazing things that we ought to believe about relationships. In chapter 2, just to summarise, we read uh, that God has actually broken down the wall of hostility that, that kept two groups of people apart as sworn enemies, Jews and the rest of us, Gentiles. And, and, and these two people groups we read in, in, in chapter 2 previously had had nothing to do with each other. In fact, Jews saw Gentiles as unclean and didn't want to be uncleansed by having association with them. Um, but now in Christ Jesus, God has broken down that wall of hostility and he's brought peace between these two groups. He's actually reconciled them together and in doing so, he's made one new humanity. And this new humanity, made up of all people now, Jews and Gentile alike, through faith in Jesus Christ, this one humanity, are now the, it become the, the new temple, the new dwelling place of God. Didn't you love that psalm? Back in the Old Testament, they're singing that you, God, are my shelter, you're my dwelling place, my hiding place. And as um, Shane was explaining, um, now in Christ, God has made his dwelling place amongst us. And so, and so we together as God's people are now that dwelling place for God. And, and, and it is in the body of Christ that we can go and have, uh, and have um, that sense of, of protection and shelter and commu- um, communication with God. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, we saw that the church is something else. The church, us, all of us, no matter what shape, size or denomination we might be, where we gather in faith around Jesus Christ and uh, we, as God's people, are living proof. We're like a billboard, a proclamation, a cosmic proclamation to all the powers and principalities, to angels and to demons. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and that God Uh, is at work through it in this world it's a declaration that's who the church is god declares his power god declares his glory to the powers and principalities who who appear to and who think they are in control of this world as they wreak havoc the powers and principalities of the of the heavenly realms but we the church are evidence that god has won we are evidence that in jesus christ god has won this is all theoretical heady stuff but it's true it's right belief And we don't just make it true by believing it, it's already true because God has done it. Now, chapter 2 and chapter 3, all that in our minds, what happens when we look around sometimes in our churches? What is it that we see, even in light of knowing that truth? I can tell you what we see. Sometimes we look around and um, we might see in our churches that there's this person we know who's always really cantankerous and not the nicest person to be around, so we do our best to kind of avoid them. And then there was this incident that happened a couple of years ago and involved a couple of people, and oh, really, there's no way in the world I'm going near that person again. They, my opinion of them has just dropped right down. They, they, they've, they've had their chance, and they blew it. And then, there was, um, then there's this other person, and right from the start, I've never really liked them. I just look and go, whoa, the way you dress, the way you speak, who you are, what you do. You and I, we just never, that's just not, you know, I'm going to look for a bigish church so that we can just, you know, walk around each other and not have to ever have anything to do with, o- with others. Maybe you've seen someone else, you've, you've never really seen eye to eye to, you've always had conflict with others. Um, Or maybe you just don't like the way someone looks or the way they speak. All all these things are are, are true of us, sadly, in the church. And so while it may be true on the one hand that God has eliminated the hostility between us and he's made peace between us, you wouldn't always know it by the way that we behave sometimes towards one another as the body of Christ. I'm not singling out any one particular church and... Thankfully, in God's providence, this, this is why we go through God's word the way we do, because what a great time to actually be reminded of this in a challenging and confronting way before, before we potentially walk into it and have, uh, have, have these, these things happen even in our own church. Within my first year of pastoral ministry, um, after training, I found myself in the middle of an awful conflict between some youth leaders... And uh, this conflict eventually escalated. It, it didn't, wasn't... I was in the middle of it. Well, I didn't cause it, but I was certainly part of the problem because we're all in the middle of it. But um, part of the problem was trying to figure out why I was part of the problem. But that aside, I, I eventually got it. And, um, but the next thing, a parent was dragged in. And this parent was a lifelong member of the church... And, and they were a lifelong, and they told, they let us all know that they were a lifelong member of the church, and they were using that as a card to throw their weight around in, in, in a situation, and it escalated, and it was an awful time. Without going into the details, it was an awful time. There were heated accusations, there was ungodly gossip, there was blatant hostility, there was nastiness, and, and that you know the, the youth ministry that I inherited used to have sixty kids. Um, as a result of, of these months of, of turmoil, we ended up with twenty. Um, it, you know it really it's a different sort of growth in the church um, that's how I framed it <clears throat> we needed to cull and get back to being serious about following Jesus and and so on but I, I gotta say I didn't go into pastoral ministry all that young um, I'm still pretty young when I think about it but I certainly wasn't all that young I was 33 and and uh, and I wasn't certainly wasn't all that naive. Um, my my father was in pastoral ministry for about thirty years, uh, as well as school teaching. And uh, he he had had two um, churches that he'd been involved in very very just horrible horrible stuff. The stuff that's just awful awful sort of stuff that you hear about in churches. And that cost him his pastorate in two churches where he had ended up having. To leave. One, he had to leave for integrity's sake. He couldn't associate with with the church making the decisions they were doing. Um, And then the other one, um, he was asked to leave um, for, for various reasons as a result of conflict. But prior to getting into pastoral ministry, I worked in the building and mining industries. And some of you have heard stories about this in the past. Um, I worked in the building and mining industries. Um, I started my apprenticeship in the suburbs of Melbourne. Um, uh, then we moved back to Perth as a family and uh, eventually met my wife, Melissa, and we got married and we moved to the, uh, the gold fields in outback Western Australia where we worked in the mining industry. But I can honestly tell you this. Uh, I have never come across such more hurtful um, hostility and conflict than what I've seen and heard of happening in churches um, than in any of those workplaces that I've been in. In in fact, I I often joke about it with other pastors when we we get together and we reflect and pray for one another and I'll say, you know what, I I still reflect on it. It was so much easier, it seemed, and conflict-free working uh, in in those sort of environments amongst a bunch of uncouth pagan um, tradies. Now, not all tradies are like that. I certainly wasn't uncouth or or pagan, um, but, but you, get, you get the point. Some of these tough work environments, they're still beautiful people there. It's one of the things that God taught me in those years was these people are, are awesome. I'd, I'd be worshipping with them way more than some of the people I've encountered in churches. They, they just don't know that they've been created in the image of God yet. They're, they're lost and they're searching, but they're awesome people. You can see the fingerprints of God uh, in their lives. i met some wonderful people in those environments. I wish I could tell you that this kind of thing weren't true. I wish I could say to you, as many, some churches sadly do, the world's a bad place, it's a horrible, horrible pagan place, but we, we're so good and we're so perfect. But I can't tell you that, because conflict and tension is often very much, all too often, a common part of church life. I'm not going to get too much darker, but uh, one, um, just, just to summarise, these are, these are things that, are, that I have, I've seen, and they're also, one or, one or two of them are things that I've, I know have happened to a close friend one close friend who i went to college with he's now in military chaplaincy full time after leaving the church as a result of conflict but at the escalation of that conflict for him he he witnessed his wife uh, was they intervened was nearly physically attacked in the foyer by an outraged deacon at one point that's that's the level of conflict that had happened in a church this is a church in sydney uh, i've seen Close friendships in churches break up through something that's happening and bust up and they still come, continue to come to the church and they just sit on opposite sides of the church and completely avoid each other and it's been going on for decades. Uh, I, I've witnessed that in churches that I have served in. Um, I've seen people leave churches with unresolved issues, just pack up their bags and go because their needs weren't being met or something wasn't happening that they thought should happen. And rather than work it through painfully sometimes or uh, appropriately in a godly way, they've just up and, up and left. And, and I've also received and welcomed in people who have come from other churches with those same unresolved issues. And within months, you just watch them repeat it all again and bring the same problems with them. There's been high-level and low-level conflict and everything in between and then there's this from Ephesians 2 his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace we look at churches sometimes and we go really really you see the real question when these sorts of things happen these sorts of situations come they always boil down to one of those two basic problems And we've got to ask ourselves the question, uh, is this conflict uh, because, um, is it a belief question or is it a a problem with living consistently with right beliefs? Is it a wrong belief or is it an inconsistent lifestyle to right beliefs? And that's what the Apostle Paul helps us with here uh, to figure this out as we go through the rest of the chapter. Firstly, is it a belief problem? see the problem some of us have quite frankly is that we don't just believe the wrong things about god we often can say i believe the right things about god our problem is we don't believe the right things about each other we actually think of each other in ways we have we, we judge people's motives we're quick to put people in boxes and we don't actually believe what the bible speaks to us as true about people the way we see each other tends to shape our likes and dislikes our annoyances rather than what God says about people being true. John Stott's a great um, minister of, of the gospel. He's passed away about eight years ago. Uh, a wise and older minister from London. He's written heaps of books. In fact, um, I rely heavily on his commentary for Ephesians and other, other books um, in, in preaching preparation. And this is what um, he's honest enough to admit as a really godly man. And he's a beautiful man, John Stott, uh, a, a lovely godly man who walks the talk and talks the walk. Um, But he himself said that he doesn't always like everyone he's had to work with and serve and minister to. And he says um, he had a way that he had developed to help his mind and heart in working with people that he had to, that he didn't appreciate or didn't value or didn't like. And as he engaged with a difficult person, he'd think to himself, and sometimes he'd even say it verbally to them, he'd say, oh, what a precious child of God you are. And how much does God love you? And that's exactly what we're called to. That's what it means to have the right thinking about one another. That's what Paul's saying here. It'll help us correct those mistaken beliefs. Well, what are some of those mistaken beliefs? One of the most common is that we, we, we see ourselves as separate from each other. We see church as an option. We see church as something that, um, that exists for our benefit, that it's, it's, we get a religious service from. We, we get something and so we think oh, I've only got to turn up and tolerate people for a couple of hours and now it's only one hour, yay! Um, but that's how, that's how we tend, that's a mistaken belief about the church. For some of us it's an issue of inconsistency with, with, with a right belief. Um, we don't even believe that church is meant to be any more than just, than just that, than just turning up, having some sort of spiritual input and then leaving again. I've heard people say that explicitly about the church, they'll they'll talk like this, they'll say, the church should be doing this, the church needs to do that, the church hasn't done this, the church should be doing that, the church, the church, and I think, and and now I'll be honest with you, I completely tune out when I hear that now because I think, who are you talking about? You're talking about yourself, aren't you? You and I are the church, we're the church together. And we often do it, I, I use the term, the church, and we've got to be careful with it. It's easy to go, the church, it's this other thing. No, 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 we're the church. And if you're a part of the church, when you come and you complain and say, the church this is the church, who are you complaining? It's, it's you, it's us. What is it you're going to do about that? What is it God might be showing you that can be done about that? Together with the church. For other of us, maybe it's to do with the belief that we, um, we can actually choose who we love. We can come to church and we can actually pick and choose. We don't have to get on with everyone. I can look for those who are the same as me and I'm going to find a church where all of us are the same and we all agree with the same thing and we all love each other the same and that, that way there'll be no conflict and there'll be no tension. At that point there, we can't practice what Paul's encouraging us to, to put up with one another, to forbear with one another because there'll be nothing to forbear. We're all the same. But Paul, you see, he's writing here to a real church. This isn't just theory. He's writing to the Ephesians where, where people are genuinely different and he tells them what they must believe about each other in verses 4 to 6. He reminds them there's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, there are seven things. You hate that, don't you? Seven things. Gosh, he's already been preaching 20 minutes. Seven things. There are seven things that Paul calls us to there and reminds us of. He reminds us that, that we are one body. You see, there is only one church. There may be different expressions of church. There may be different traditions, different practices, but faith in Jesus Christ, accepting what God's done on, on our behalf uh, through him and putting our faith in him as both uh, the divine and the human God-man who came and was sent into this world to forgive the world of its sins through his death and resurrection and he's promising to return that's that's who we are if you're in that group then we are part of the one church there's one body and therefore we are united with uh with all members of that body even the cousins or the rallies we don't particularly perhaps like or wouldn't ordinarily hang out with very much we're still the one body he reminds us that it's one spirit there's only one holy spirit regardless of who we are or how we came to faith The same Holy Spirit is the one who convicted us about our sin. He's the same one who converted us and did that work within us to trust Jesus. He talks about one hope. By this he means not this kind of wishful thinking. It's one hope. It's this confident expectation in what God has promised us. And Paul talks about the Holy Spirit being given to us as proof of what's yet to come. And he's speaking, I think, when he talks about this one hope, he's reminding us that, you know what, eventually we're going to be standing shoulder to shoulder with no social distancing uh, whatsoever, with everyone from all denominations, from all tribes, from all nations, from all age groups, all walks of life, worshipping Jesus on his throne. That's the hope. The things that divide us now will be totally gone. What about one Lord? Well, that's an obvious one, illustrated wonderfully by A.W. Tozer, He gives this illustration, you know, if we were to line up 100 pianos and try and tune them um, off themselves, so say one of them was in tune and we, we try and we play that one that's in tune, we try and tune the next one off that one and the next one off, off that one and so on. Uh, apparently you, you'll have a disastrous noise when those 100 pianos play together, right? You can't get them to be in harmony one with another. What you need is you need a, a separate tuning fork, and the separate tuning fork, the one tuning fork, is what each one of those 100 churches need to, and 100 pianos need to be, uh, need to be tuned with. And, and when you do that, you'll have this perfect, beautiful harmony, this unified chorus together of these 100 pianos. And that's what we, the church, are like. It's what it means to have one Lord. We have one Lord that tunes us. And the more in tune we are with our one Lord, the more in tune we will be with each other. What about one faith? Well, I believe Paul's talking about the gospel here. There's only one gospel message, and uh, we know what that is, and we've had that uh, expressed already. It's by grace that we've been saved, by, uh, through faith, nothing that we've done for ourselves, uh, a work that has come as an act of God's grace to us. One baptism. He speaks about and this isn't really about one type of baptism that's not what paul's talking about there was only one baptism in paul's day and how it was done and when it was done of things that have changed over time but basically um, different denominations practice differently but when paul wrote this baptism was was, was the one kind um, every new disciple was baptized into christ it was a, a unifying symbol that everyone went through jew or gentile you needed to be baptized as a a symbolic demonstration of what God had done to you, as you belong now to the body of Christ, you're baptised into Christ. Um, That's why we as a Baptist church, we practise what we call believer's baptism. It means when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the obvious thing as a marker, as a symbol of what's happened in your life, is to get baptised. And so we don't put an age limit on it. We don't have adult baptism, we don't have infant baptism, we just practise believer's baptism. Well, what about one God and Father of all? Well, finally, Paul outlays that all of this that's been done comes from the one source. It's the work of God our Father. Paul is saying that all these themes, things form the basis of our unity and it's what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. It's not something that we create. It's something that already exists because of what God has done. Church, I want to encourage us, uh, in regard to this, uh, we get the right belief thing, I, I believe, as a church. But, you know, now more than ever, it's crucial that we really live lives that are worthy of that, of that belief of the gospel that we put our faith into. Um, because, you know, while we're isolated, while we're experiencing restrictions and we're re- re- experiencing things that restrain us, um, frustrations will naturally come. Uh, I get frustrated. Believe me, there's no, there's no one in here that can be more frustrated than, than me over the last several months, and any pastor, really, uh, including the elders and, and other leaders, we, um, it can be frustrating. And so it's times like that that we need to be extra vigilant in the way we relate to one another. And we need to really understand that in Christ we have become one and that no, nothing can threaten that, no persistent, invisible, deadly virus, no government-imposed restrictions and limitations, none of those things can change or take that away. What God has done for us in Christ stands. Well, that's the belief problem. What about uh, a behaviour problem? Let's face it, some of us have correct theology of relationship. We actually go, I I know all that, Chris. Um, Yep, we totally get what church is and what it's meant to be under God. Maybe our problem in this case is how we apply that theology to real people. Real people who, who really sin. Real people who will let us down. Real people who will even hurt us at times, intentionally even, mostly without even knowing it. And this is what Paul says in verses 2 and 3. He gives us a way forward. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see, he's just revealed some of the most profound theology in all of Scripture, and now he goes to apply it. And what do we find? He's giving us advice in what? and how to get along with each other. He takes it from the grand, this eternal plan of God, and comes right down to how it is that we get on with each other. And this is because God is bringing everything together at the one point in unity under Christ, which will mean applying our theology, applying what we know to be true, what we believe, what we claim to believe, but applying it with real people in real situations and real circumstances and paul gives us humility to do it and paul says we need humility to do it you know this is brand spanking new we know humility don't we we all go yeah yeah i know i'm meant to be a christian i'm meant to be humble i get that do you know when paul's writing this it was brand new to encourage someone to practice humility um being humble was something that was done to you you were humbled okay power would come into your presence and they would let you know that you need to humble yourself before them It's why you bowed and scraped and gave little offerings to caesar and everything and made declaration and and in social situations you'd put yourself you'd humble yourself you'd put yourself in lower positions because you were low (laughs) and 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 it was a way of honoring those who were letting you know that they are in positions of power um not so says paul in christ we do the opposite We intentionally put ourselves in positions uh, lower than what we might be entitled to or our rights. And the more powerful you are, the more humble you need to be. And that's a brand new thing. Um, Before it became a virtue, it was actually a vice. Paul says in Christ, he's turned his head on those things, turned it upside down, turned it on its head, and humility becomes something that we need um, to practice and live with. It's literally a lowliness of mind, And you know powerful people who are humble, don't you? Because they've got everything going for them, they've got every position, every power you can see, but you know they're humble because despite that, they actually every day practice humility, they humble themselves, they have a loneliness of mind. What about gentleness? Well, that's this reference to um, a disposition of how we are towards other people, that we're gentle towards other people. Um, It's best compared to the way we should be towards domestic animals, Um, like to a pet. Um, I'm looking across at my family because um, I get chided for the way I pat one of our dogs. He's a very solid dog, very muscly dog, and he can take a lot more than than my family thinks he can take. Um, But I'm I'm just confessing there a little bit. The, the way you approach a domestic animal is, 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 is with gentleness, right? You know, you don't just come up and r- 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 you'll get bitten. Um, you, you take your time, you get to know them, you approach them with gentleness. It means controlling one's strength to be considerate of others, being more concerned about the common good than getting our own way. What about patience? Well, a different way of putting it is to be long-suffering towards frustrating people. And you know why God brings frustrating people into our lives? So we can practise... Patience. If there were no people that we had to tolerate and be long-suffering towards, we wouldn't ever experience how to be patient. And the last one, of course, is similar, bearing with one another in love. You know, there are always going to be tensions and conflicts and misunderstandings, and on very rare occasions, thankfully, just downright malicious nastiness. Sometimes we just have to put up with each other. And Paul says here, not just put up with each other like, oh, that's fine, I'm in a big church, they're over there, I'm over here, I don't have to worry about them. But he says to do it in love. We can actually do it with love. We can actually forbear, put up with one another in love. Well, as we close, um, two of my favourite reformers, these are just church historians, right? People who at the time didn't know they were going to become church historians, just doing, doing faithfully what they believed God was telling them to do in the history of the church and history looks back and we see these people as great influences and changes of society, two of them my favourite, Martin Luther and Calvin, uh, John Calvin and uh, historically neither of them had much to do with each other, they were at work in different parts of the world in Europe and uh, they had um, the same sort of intent to try and reform the church uh, and bring it back to God's word but they came at it from two very different perspectives and they have discovered some some writings between them and Martin Luther uh, had a really bad temper, something he wrestled with all his life and uh, he's known to have once called John Calvin a pig and a devil. Now that's that's really insulting back then, this is before Twitter, before Facebook, you know, you wrote it down, someone historically has discovered the right, gone what? Martin Luther's called John Calvin a pig and a devil, they are fighting words but they've also found how John Calvin responded to Martin Luther. And this is what he said of him in response. He said, Luther may call me what he will, but I will always call him a dear servant of Christ. Now, I know that's elevating one over the other. I have no doubt Martin Luther would have been aware of that and in his more humble times would have thought similarly of John Calvin. They're certainly both thinking of each other now in the presence of God. You see, maybe some of us need to change our beliefs about relationships within the church. Maybe we need to realise that as the church We're way more than just a collection of people that come together for whatever reasons, but they're actually here to connect with one another and to practice these things that help us to live a life worthy of the calling God's placed on us. Let us pray. Our Father, um, we pray this morning that you would help us to continue believing the right things about you, that holy spirit you would um, con- convict us and confront us with truths and beliefs that need um, need your breath breathed into them need tweaking and changing so that we would believe rightly about you and about ourselves and about our role in this world father we also pray that you would um, help those beliefs to consistently inform our actions one with another we acknowledge father we don't always get this right i know that in my own life Uh, hypocrisy is in this life at least this side of glory is something we are all going to struggle and wrestle with but we ask that each and every day you would be at work in us and that you would transform us and highlight the things that need changing and tweaking and may that happen in light of what we've heard this morning we come to you now as our source of life as our source of forgiveness and our source of reconciliation May we live lives worthy of the calling that we've received and may we do so in the way that we love one another, especially in these difficult and uncertain times. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.